Welcome to the Arnolfini Gallery Bristol and this current exhibition entitled Still I Rise. Feminism, Gender, Resistance, Act 3. This large-scale exhibition of international artists highlights the experience of women and celebrates their triumphs and showing how the struggle for liberation is ongoing and hard won. This is a co-exhibition with the Nottingham Contemporary and the Delaware Pavilion, Bexhill-on-Sea, and is supported by Arts Council England and the University of the West of England. Still I Rise it contains themes and images of oppression, violence and trauma that women, trans and non-binary people across the world experience. The exhibition contains some nudity and sexualised content. There are also references to violence, rape, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, ableism, racism, war, death and the AIDS epidemic. Just to the right of the information desk, displayed on the silver metal panels forming the side of the lift shaft, is our first featured piece. It faces the main entrance door and is the 1992 photographic poster of Afro-American activist Terence Smith, posing in her drag persona as Joan Jett Black. The image is a remake of the famous 1967 photograph of Black Panther founder Huey P. Newton, sat on a wicker chair, a gun in one hand and a spear in the other. Black's rendition is stripped down and camped up. The gun, now a water pistol. The poster is approximately a metre wide and a metre and a half long. Joan, dressed entirely in a figure-hugging black, is casually seated in a high-backed, ornate wicker chair facing towards us. Two large gold hooped earrings frame her strong cheekbones, hanging just below her thick afro-styled hair. A pair of dark black shades masks her eyes. Her fully glossed lipstick lips remain closed and her expression is neutral, yet still appears to challenge. The 15 centimetre deep black header has white lettering reading Joan Jet Black, black spelt B-L-A-K-K, -K, for president. The slightly narrower black footer reads by any means necessary. Joan Jett Black was the founder of the Chicago chapter of Queer Nation, formed at the peak of the HIV crisis to counteract the increasing stigmatisation of the LGBTQ community. Black first came to visibility while running for president in 1992. She announced a candidacy on the day she turned 35, the minimum age required to be a presidential candidate. The year before, she had campaigned against Richard Daly's re-election as mayor of Chicago. Her programme revolved around the establishment of the national health care system, ending police violence and homophobia, as well as direct democracy. Black notably claimed that she would take direct calls from her constituents at the White House and that she was not a spokesperson, but a spokesmodel. This poster, with its reference to the Black Panthers, also suggests a connection to intersectional thinking. Queer Nation was very much aware of the necessity to speak beyond one specific section of the gay community.
The tagline on the information board beside the artwork features a quote from Black. If a bad actor can be elected president, why not a good drag queen? Our next pieces are also here on level zero, housed in gallery one, which has two entrances. To locate our next selected piece, take eight paces past the lift shaft and the doorway is located on your left. The entrance is a three metre wide opening, allowing flat floor access into the gallery, which is an oblong space around the size of two tennis courts set side by side. Our second piece is by Pat Garrett and Jackie Collins and is displayed on a freestanding waist-high table covered with a perspex top. This exhibit is a board game entitled Roots and Bootstraps, a working-class woman's journey towards middle-class feminism. It is loosely modelled on the popular Snakes and Ladders game. Please be aware that there may be some loose grey beanbag cushions around the base of this exhibit. Set on top of the perspex is a large wooden dice and four plastic cone-shaped playing counters in poppy red, turquoise, lime green and canary yellow. The 42 squared game is printed on pale orange card with red lace bootstraps to forward you up the numbered steps and green plant roots topped with the outline of two small leaves to take you back down. The majority of the squares have text in neat black handwriting. A few have the addition of a simple line drawing. Square one reads, this is a whole new board game you've never played before. You have no idea what the rules are and what it means to win. But if you play properly, you could become a really nice feminist. I will now offer a brief selection of some of the other playing squares. Squares four to six contain images of the DHSS, the Unemployment Benefit Office, and the Job Centre. The text beneath all three squares state, once you land in any of these three squares, you've had it. The only way out of this poverty trap is if one of your fellow players, also on her journey to aspiring middle-class feminism, gives up some of her privileges in the form of five of her turns. If no one will do so, you are stuck here until you opt out. It is important to take your turn and move between the relevant offices or you won't get your gyro. Box 15 reads, your ex-landlady and busy lecturer writes and asks you for half of the phone bill. The fact that you gave her two weeks extra rent before you left has obviously slipped her mind. You don't send her the money. Go back two squares for being unsisterly. Box 25. You wonder when you're going to get an inheritance. Go back two squares for being diverted from the real struggle. Finally, Box 42 informs us you've realised you've been conned. Collect £200 from the nearest rich, your definition, not theirs, middle-class woman and start your own board game. The end. Or is it the beginning? The artists Pat Garrett and Jackie Collins are working-class feminists, community organisers, activists 
and the founders of the Tyneside Rape Crisis Centre in Newcastle. They created this board game in the early 1980s in response to the polarisation they felt between the working class and middle class feminists in the northeast of England. The goal is not to win, but to struggle and to feel the struggle. Originally printed as an edition of 50 and sold at Sister Right in Islington, which was the first feminist bookshop in London, this is the only known surviving copy of the game. Our next exhibit is located on the gallery wall to your right and features a collection of 15 posters housed behind Perspect clip frames entitled See Red Women's Workshop. They were a London-based coalition formed to tackle misogyny and injustice via political images. It brought together women from different backgrounds to make posters and calendars that expressed the personal experiences of women as well as their role and the wider struggles for change. Their intent was to make strong statements in visual language that were bold and often humorous, thus combating sexual images of women and offering positive and challenging alternatives. I will now describe a selection for you. The poster on the left is green, single-coloured cartoon-style presentation on a white background. On the left is a portable radio, and on its front side is the image of a male DJ wearing headphones. His speech bubble holds song titles which include Be Young and Beautiful If You Want to Be Loved and Girl Talk. On the right is a stern-looking lady with curlers in her hair, wearing a checked apron and holding a kettle in her right hand. The text above reads, The state and sexist advertising causes illness. Don't let these men invade your homes. The poster has an old-fashioned pricing label in its lower right-hand corner, reading, Grassroot Books, £1. To the right is a red and white printed poster on a yellow background. The grainy image at the bottom depicts three protesting women in their middle years, Two have their fists clenched and raised high, their mouths open in mid-chant. The third has an anxious expression, her lips tightly pursed as she gazes outwards. The red text reads, So long as women are not free, the people are not free. Continuing right, a third poster set high is predominantly coloured navy blue and burnt orange. The slogan at the top states, my message to the women of our nation. Centrally is a photograph of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher with a white speech bubble with the word tough in uppercase red letters. Cartoon style images fill the surrounding frame. At the top it reads 4,000 million cuts in public spending by 1981. Images include a mother carrying a sick child. The words read, hospital closed. A second sign reads, casualty, 26 miles. Passengers on a bus with words stating, fare increases. A slipper-wearing lady leans from her armchair towards a two-bar electric fire, informs us gas and electricity up 16%. And a younger woman supporting an older woman with two small children tugging at her legs states, daycare centres closed, nurseries 
closed. Right and below is a poster showing seven black and white photographic images of non-white women and their families. Three of the photos show people holding banners. The slogans have been highlighted in red. The first reads, Welcome to Britain, Welcome to Second Class Citizenship. The second simply, Black women will not be intimidated. And the third, Black people against state brutality. The largest photo shows new arrivals stood in a queue. One family with their life possessions piled high on a Heathrow airport trolley before a sign reading customs. Other images include a smiling East End garment worker stood at a sewing machine and a white-hatted lady hugging a small girl close to her chest. Above and right, a black and white photo shows a woman wearing a wedding dress stood with her hands plunged deep into a very messy kitchen sink. She stares at us with a half-fierce, half-disgruntled expression. The slogan above reads, Is the life after marriage? Added to the photo are two bright red flowers tucked over the bride's ears and a discarded bouquet of roses lying at her feet. Forming a triangular shape is the addition of the letters Y above the letters BA on the second line and the word wife at the bottom, reading Y be a wife. On the far right is a black and white poster showing hourly timed and dated black and white images from 6am when a mum is woken by her baby in the cot through to 11pm and finally the repeat of the 6am image. The images show the long and hard-working day of a stay-at-home mother, serving food, on the school run, shopping, cleaning, doing the laundry, ironing and taking the children to the park. Only the 1pm image doesn't feature the mother, but instead her husband, drinking a pint in the pub with a male work colleague. His speech bubble in red reads, My wife doesn't work. Our gallery tour now takes us up to galleries two to four, up on level one on the first floor. You'll need to head around ten steps right back to the door you arrived through. You have two options. First is to take the lift facing you. When you exit the lift at floor one level, turn left and take around ten paces forwards. The gallery entrance is a further four steps to your right. Alternatively, if you prefer, you can take the stairs, accessed behind the lift shaft, just to your left. This is around eight paces forwards, but please be careful of the white concrete pillar just before the bottom of the steps. The stairs are in two flights, linked by a long landing, approximately six paces long. There are continuous handrails on both sides. At the top of the stairs, take eight paces forwards, keeping to your left, and the gallery entrance is just in front of you. Our next artist's exhibit sits centrally in the room. Please note there is a continuous knee-high rope around the three pieces. Tai Shani's work is embedded in the power of language. She proposes complex narratives woven within her experimental texts that ground her practice. 
Shani's immersive installations and performances resist classification, transporting audiences from history to fiction and the inner workings of the mind. The three exhibits, entitled Mixed Media, all sit on waist-high pale grey table legs. The configurations of each plain grey tabletop is different apart from their size and approximate shape. Around a metre long and half a metre wide, the oblong surfaces have their corners removed, leaving a 15 centimetre flat surface, which increases the flat sides from four to eight. The three tables stand long ways onto us, set one after the other, with just over a metre gap between each piece. The information card written by Turner Prize nominee Shelley tells us these are models for a structured, tragic play about my family. These are sites for myth-making and the collapse of myth onto prosaic materials, both natural and synthetic. These are cryptic. They are spellbooks to be read literally, but with a profound belief. They are symbolic portraits of a time-travelling mystic. They are portals for ghosts to come into our world. They can be summonsed here. The first exhibit has a raised step-like structure, the shape of an apex roof running along the front edge nearest to us. It rises around five centimetres. The central strip beyond has a low raised pattern, almost like the walkways and raised beds and lawns of a formal garden. The raised sections are barely a few millimetres high. This almost symmetric design is bisected by the shape of an airplane propeller, with long thin arms stretching out from a central circle, with similar sized circles on each extremity. Two other low structures sit along the far edge. The one on the left is long with rounded ends and has two raised button-like circles, one towards each end. The right hand shape matches that of the tabletop and only contains one raised button towards its right end. Spaced across this grey surface are three centimetre round balls. Two have a matte finish, one scarlet red, the second mud brown. The third ball is shiny gold. A small flesh pink pyramid sits to the right and carefully placed in the centre are two flat shapes no more than seven centimetres in diameter linked by a wavy blue plastic ribbon. The nearest flat shape resembles a leaf and is formed from a slither of green crystal. Three smaller centimetre sized crystals sit on top. A caramel coloured diamond a purple multifaceted ball and a nice white star. The opposite surface is like a roughly rolled out oval of dough and is the same flesh pink as the pyramid. Two life-size fingers, although these are pale blue, reach out to sit on each side. Between them is a flat oval of blue and amber crystal topped with the shape of pink lips. A tiny silver spoon lies beside them. The middle tabletop rises up around 15 centimetres in tiers of seven shallow steps around the edge. The top surface is similar to a slightly elongated Maltese cross. Many objects are spread out over it. 
These include three pink cylinders laid flat, similar to small rolling pins. There are two larger palm-sized pieces of crystal, one green, the other coral pink. The green crystal is topped with a small scarlet triangle and a larger roundish piece of amber, about three centimetres in diameter. A larger-than-life-size white molar tooth sits on the pink crystal disc. Centrally are two tiny blue hands reaching out towards a small pink brooch with pearl decorations hanging from another blue ribbon. Suspended from another ribbon in the lower right is a pink crystal disc with a small pear-shaped fruit on top. On the right, a severed green head with a tiny ladybird perched on a nose and lolling tongue lies face upwards on a pink plastic disc with another blue ribbon. A small oatmeal brown archway, four small balls, one scarlet, one turquoise, one flesh-coloured and one gold are amongst the other objects, along with half of a larger pink ball. The third table has a 15 centimetre deep edge and steps leading down into it. It is the reverse of the middle table, as though this third table is what remains after the second table was carved from it. It too has flat sections of crystals, but double the size of the previous pieces. One is sea green, the other orange with a red patterning. This contains a single large-scale blue hand, a small white bone, a miniature version of the severed head, two rolling pin shapes and several small balls along with one larger silver ball. A baby turtle is crawling across the green crystal. There is also a small pink rose in a white vase, a five-sided pentagon mustard yellow wooden shape and two further small crystals, one green and one rose red. We move on to our next exhibit by taking eight paces to the left of our previous work. Set in the rear right-hand wall of the gallery are displayed eight black and white photographs by Brenda Prince, each celebrating disability. They are all around A4 in size, some portrait, some landscape, all with simple matte black wooden frames. The left-hand photo shows three visually impaired ladies outside Parliament, displaying a large banner reading, Rights Now. They were lobbying MPs in support of the Civil Rights Disabled Persons Bill of 1995. Above, on the right, a beaming small boy stands beside his wheelchair-seated mother. Their placard reads, If you exclude my mum, you exclude me followed by the smaller wording, no disabled mums wanted, together with a sad face. Below is a photo taken at the London Lesbian and Gay Pride March 1994 and shows a group of wheelchair-using lesbians and their families. Next is a photo showing two uniformed police officers attempting to use a bolt cropper to remove the handcuffs from a disabled woman who has handcuffed herself to a wheelchair in the path of a bus. This was part of a protest at the government blocking the Disability Rights Bill in 1984. 
The next two photos feature six women in wheelchairs holding placards beneath a hoarding displaying a Guardian advertisement of an elderly woman in a wheelchair depicted as Britannia, complete with Union Jack shields as wheel caps and carrying a trident. In the first photo, they carry banners which read, Women in wheelchairs are powerful. The Guardian is wrong. In the photo below, the banners are gone and the protesters are lined up sideways onto us, sticking up two fingers towards the poster. The final two photos show people attending both the Equal Rights for People with Disability rally and the Civil Rights Bill for Disabled People rally and march, both held in London during 1994. The first features a black wheelchair user behind a placard reading, Disability and health is work. Pay us a wage, not charity. Win visible, women with visible and invisible disabilities. The second shows the march in progress with wheelchair users holding banners reading, For absent friends, our strength grows as our struggle continues. Another says, Crip with a chip. Photographer Brenda Prince was a member of Format Photographers, an agency for women photographers set up in 1982. It gave women the opportunity to develop their careers and to cover issues and people usually overlooked by the mainstream media. Brenda set out to document women doing non-traditional jobs, such as carpenters, civil engineers and firefighters, and to represent these people so often misrepresented. This included people with disability, black people, the elderly, and gays and lesbians. Take approximately 12 steps to your right, and this will take you in to the next gallery. Keeping fairly close to the left-hand wall, take another 10 paces forwards, and hanging suspended from the gallery ceiling is the Temple of Sister Paradise, where artist Zenobia Bailey has created a crocheted shelter. I would suggest you take another eight paces to your right and then just shuffle a little further to your right, taking you to the very front of this exhibit. The Gospel of Sister Paradise is an urban folktale written by Bailey herself, featuring an obeyer woman a healer able to communicate with spirits and nature from West Africa. Set in pre-colonial times, Sister Paradise faces the sudden disappearance of her people, taken in slave raids. She then embarks upon an expedition to the source of the problem. This installation acts as a kind of firewall against colonialism and enslavement, offering a potential healing force from their aftermaths. Made from cotton and acrylic yarn and supported on a metal frame, this vibrant, tent-like structure is also embellished with shells. It hangs above a circular yellow rug with red vein-like patterning. This is edged with black trim, with red letters and phrases which read At the Crossroads, Industrialised Roots and Spell Number 9. Ebibule City Kinesis. 
fanning out from this black edging are a mass of orange and red flame shapes, like a fiery sun. This six-metre-high temple has a square base, similar to the Westminster Clock Tower, but this one is topped at the peak with a small round green and yellow dome. The upper walls of the tower are symmetrical on all sides, with varying horizontal stripes of woven yarns, predominantly in black, yellow, red and green. They're decorated with woolen pom-poms and more flame-like, fiery fringing. The lower sections have similar friezes on three sides, with strange black plants growing up out of teacup-shaped pots set against a yellow background. At the front edge, red and gold ribbons form a curtained entrance. Above are embroidered the words, Sister Paradise's Great Wall of Fire Revival Tent. Mystic, seer, faith healer, enchantress extraordinaire. Two eyes with black eyeballs and narrow white irises made from shells are both topped with a fan of green woolen eyelids, complete with small green pom-pom style mascara set either side of the wording. I should now warn you, navigating to our last exhibit is going to prove the trickiest part of your visit. Turning round, please stick close to the right-hand curtain to avoid tripping over a monitor placed on the floor to the left. Taking six steps round the end of the curtain, turn right for another six steps. Now, Turn left and taking four more steps forwards, round the final screen. You can now follow its curve round to the left for around 20 paces. When you've arrived, turn right into the last room of level one, where we discover our final artist's work displayed on the right-hand wall as we enter. These are five A3 size coloured photographs by Judy Chicago, each framed with a deep cream mount and toning cream wooden frame. Judy began exploring the idea of open female-centred art in 1968 with a series of photographs entitled Atmospheres. Prior to this, she had made paintings and sculptures intending to convey emotion through colour. Judy uses smoke and fireworks to create works that transform the landscape in order to soften their macho environment. She even undertook a pyrotechnics apprenticeship in order to acquire the skills she needed, such as adding colourful tints to fireworks. But she had to leave the course prematurely due to sexual harassment. The top left-hand photo is entitled Immolation and depicts a female figure with green skin, head bowed, sat cross-legged in a desert setting amongst plumes of orange smoke. The flames from a fire burn in the lower left foreground. The photo was taken in the Californian desert in 1972. This was a time when a lot of monks in Vietnam had set fire to themselves to protest against the war and its expansion into Cambodia. Doing extensive research into women's history, Judy learned of the Indian practice of sati, where widows are forced to throw themselves into the flames of a funeral pyre. She thus became interested in the whole practice of immolation, both forced and chosen. 
The photo below is called Multicoloured Atmosphere, 1970. The billowing, rolling clouds of red, orange, black and white smoke completely obliterates any clear sense of the real setting. The outlines of black buildings and a single tree appear present in the distance. In the foreground, a central dark rectangle is framed with a white raised side. The density of the smoke has distorted the light, making the surface appear black. But with some small reflections of the cloud upon its surface, it is likely that this is a swimming pool or man-made pond. The central picture is entitled Smoke Goddess, Woman with Orange Flames, 1972. The green-skinned central lady stands before a rising rock face, mostly obliterated by the thick canopy of tree branches spread overhead. The foreground is a steep incline of fallen rocks and shingle. The woman, who has loose orange hair, stands with her arms extended and raised, holding two smoke canisters, which are billowing a backdrop of flame-orange smoke behind her. The top right photo is called Smoke Hole, 1970. Taken from a low vantage point, the photo depicts a forest scene. The top half of the photo shows very tall, thin trunk trees rising high against a clear blue sky. In the lower foreground, the dry brown earth has fallen away, revealing the twisted roots of one of the trees. Judy's characteristic orange smoke billows in a cloud from the centre of the composition. Paler wisps rising up into the sky, with a heavier, darker smoke falling down through the cuts and crevices in the soil like a volcanic flow. The final photo in the bottom right is called Bridge Atmosphere, 1972. In this final piece, the photo is dissected by the long metal bridge, suspended on towering concrete pillars, spanning the highway which runs parallel beneath. The bridge sits high over the intersection's traffic lights and directional street signage. The pale blue sky above has just a few wispy white clouds. Transforming this everyday American street scene is an endless row of orange glowing fires set equidistantly along and across the bridge. Black and grey smoke billows up 15 to 20 metres into the sky. And that concludes this audio guide to the Arnolfini's exhibition of Still I Rise. To leave the gallery, the exit is behind you on your left. Stepping back into the central gallery, follow the left-hand wall straight down around 16 paces. This will take you out into the first floor corridor. The lift is a few steps to your left, or alternatively, the stairs are around 20 paces and round to the left. Please don't forget to hand your stick pens back in at the reception desk. We hope you have enjoyed your visit and would welcome any feedback.